In this episode of Have the Nerve, we talk about what I think is the most amazing part of the human body, the brain. I'm Camila. I am currently a lecturer at UTS at the physiotherapy discipline and I'm a physiotherapist by trade. I trained, I was trained in Brazil and then I did my specialization course, which is like a master's by coursework in neurology and then moved to Australia to do my PhD in spinal cord injuries with a scholarship funded by Spinal Cord Injuries Australian. Hi, my name's Hannah. I'm a physiotherapist. Been working with Neuromoves for five years now. Um, and prior to that, I worked in musculoskeletal practice as well as working across some of the hospitals and specifically the more rehabilitation-based ones in Adelaide. We talk about neuroplasticity and the information superhighway that is the spinal cord. How does this relate to people with spinal cord injuries? Camilla and Hannah will tell you more about it. If we look at neuroplasticity if we break down what neuro actually means so when we speak about neuro we're referring to any of the cells that are in the brain or the spinal cord that sort of makes up our nervous system and then plasticity is essentially the ability to change or mold so when we combine these words we essentially are looking at the nervous system's ability to change and mold Um, And that might be because it's being damaged or it might be as we're sort of developing and growing. That sort of all encompasses neuroplasticity. If we look at the technical term, it's defined as the ability of the nervous system to respond to our sort of internal or external stimuli. And it does that by reorganising its structure, its function and the connections that we have in our brain. So essentially, in a bit more of a simple term, it's essentially our brain's ability to change and form new connections within itself, um, which then impacts our function and is responsible for essentially everything we do in everyday life. And I guess the beautiful thing about neuroplasticity is that it ha- started to happen in our, when we are still in the womb and then it, uh, it doesn't end. So we, const- we are able to learn throughout our whole lives. Our brain changes according to the experience that we are exposed to. Um, not only we think a lot in physio about training as the experience that pushes neuroplasticity, but it's what makes us what we are. Like our experience, it shapes what we are and it shapes the way that we think. It shapes our, our skills and it's in pretty much in everything that we do. Of course, it's more preeminent in when we are kids, there's a lot of neuroplasticity happening. Our brains are just like this clay that is being molded. After we, after the age of 25, we have we start to have decreased number of, of neurons, but we, there's still potential for new connections and new uh, networks should be formed. And yeah, and it doesn't it doesn't finish as we get older. It gets less, maybe more difficult to activate some new uh, to form new pathways, but it's always present even before we are born all the way to end of life. Cool. So how does this translate to motor and body function? Does anyone want to talk to that? So the skills that we've learned, we've learned through neuroplasticity. So there's two main roles of neuroplasticity that we study when you're thinking about movement. So when you learn a new task, when you learn, for example, to ride a bike or to ride or to, to drive, which are usually skills, driving is a skill that we learn when we are older, but all those skills um they happen and they be, we become ef- efficient and effective on on those skills because we have these new connections forming in our in our brain and the more that we use those connections we get even more skilled so if you think about when you're learning how to drive your car 
And I like to use that example because it's usually an activity that we learn when we are older. So we still have the recollection on how we've learned that, that activity. So at the beginning, like you're thinking about everything. So first thing that I have to do when I get into the car, how I'm going to move this car around. So everything is very, is very taxing in, in your brain because you still don't have those connections formed. Once you do it more and more and more, so pretty much after a few months that you're driving, you don't even think anymore what your feet are doing, what your hands are doing. You can you can listen to music while you're driving. You can talk to people while you're driving. And this becomes quite automatic because the more that we use those pathways, the stronger they get and um, easier a movement, easier a task uh, becomes. So that's the main thing when we're learning new tasks. The other aspect of neuroplasticity is when we have in, an injury. So we know that our brain, our spinal cord, our nerves, they respond to, the, to an injury in a way that our body is always trying to recover. When you have an injury, even if it's to your skin, our tissues, they're always thriving to try to recover and, and get better from that, from that injury. And the same thing happens in our brain, our spinal cord, in our nerves. When, once you have an injury, your cells are working, trying to recover. What happens often is, especially in the spinal cord, is that in the cell environment, the chemical environment in the spinal cord, quite often is not so favorable to, to neuroplasticity and the inflammation process that is often trying to keep those cells alive uh, inhibit the, the, the neuroplastic processes, but um, they're still there, they're still possible. And I guess what we're trying to learn is how do we, at least how do we yield this process through exercise, through medication, through cell replacement which is the case of the, the stem cells. In the brain, we know much more. We've learned how to induce neuroplasticity in the brain. So the connections are there because we have, imagine like in the brain, you have several networks of neurons, right? Whereas in the spinal cord, you, you still have several networks, but you have less networks in that smaller space <laughs> when you compare the brain to, to your spinal cord. So think, when you think about the brain, you think about like um, the train system in Tokyo. You have so many connections and so many lines and so many different platforms, whereas the spinal cord is a train system with less platforms and less train lines. <laughs> so with so many train lines in the brain, it's much it's easier to get to point A to point B. You have many more options, whereas in the spinal cord, we have less options, but we, and we're still trying to figure out how we will yield those new connections, those new, those new pathways, whereas in the brain, as I was saying, we, we know that repetition is important. We know some medication that can help with neuroplasticity. We know much more about the mysteries of that in the brain. And, and for, the, for the spinal cord, we're still trying to decipher all of that. When a spinal cord is damaged, um, how does the body, I guess, or the brain, um, how, where does it go from there? So how does it basically start rebuilding? Is it rebuilding? I actually don't know. So I'm coming from a very ignorant place right now. Yeah, so I think um, it probably helps just to get a very basic brain anatomy lesson. So essentially, as Cam was saying, within our brain, we've got all these little pathways, which we call synapses, but that's what's essentially linking all of these amazing little networks and all these actions that we've learned and all that sort of thing. So when one of those is damaged, so for example, when we have damage to the brain, essentially what our brain starts to do straight away is try and 
go another way. So if you think about going, we always use traffic, think about going on a highway, you've got this express way to get from A to B. So for example, if we're thinking someone who is walking, we've got this automated pathway A to B. If that pathway then gets damaged, our brain sort of starts trying to work out this new way to get from A to B. So it might say, okay, we can't go down this highway. Let's start working on a way to get through these back streets. And that's when we sort of start to look at our therapy and design our treatment strategies around that. And one of the really important ones is repetition. So the more we're going to do it, as Cam said, the stronger these synapses and these pathways are going to get and the more effort is going to go towards trying to get us from that A to B. So there's a whole science behind that that found that repetition is, is, is the key for formation of new new synapses because the more that we repeat because the way that we develop a movement we get a lot of sensory information as we're starting to figure out for example how to walk to have the sensory information from your um, skin around your legs and from your muscles contracting and that sensory information gives um helps releasing factors and enzymes in the brain that forms those connections and so it's kind of a um, the sensory information is important to help you form in those connections. But the more they use those connections, the more they you act on those connections, more well established those connections get. So there's is there's a whole science around neuroplasticity that explains the role of hip repetition. And it's not only repetition. We think a lot about repetition as as key, but it's also specificity, which means that if you want to learn how to walk, you need to take steps. So in training. If someone's goals is to improve, for example, hand function to write, it's different than improving hand function to reach for a glass and, and drink because the pathways are different. The combination of muscles that you have to contract are different. The sensory receptors are, that are being used is, is completely different. So repetition is important, but also specificity. So you need to train to what you need to, to what you want to, to improve. It's pretty much like the athletes. We use the athlete analogy a lot. So a swimmer is not going to do, do well in running a 100-meter sprint, you know. So, so, yeah, so specificity is another thing. Motivation is another thing. So pretty much us as humans, we learn what we want to learn. And you see that a lot in babies. So they're very explorative. They're always trying to figure things out. So things where we have interest are the things that we're going to learn, that we're going to facilitate that deformation of neuroplasticity. And that's very clear. When we go to uni, we know, like, we, we really learn the subjects that we like, that we see that it's meaningful. So that's an important, the subjects that we don't think that, oh, my God, what am I going to do with that? We, we learn it for the exam, but then we, we forget about it. So it's the same thing with neuroplasticity. So that's why it's so important for us as therapists to work on the things that patients need, want to work. So if you as a patient, if you don't see a meaning on what we're trying to do, it's one less pillar that we have to build those new connections in, you know, in your brain. It has to be meaningful. It has to be specific. It has to be repetitive. So I think that will be the, one of the three key things to, to list uh, neuroplasticity in the brain. Is this part of the 10 principles of neuroplasticity? Of the, well, do you do know something yeah. about neuroplasticity? <laughs> <laughs> so these are the three very I am reading notes. <laughs> do you perhaps want to go through the other seven? <laughs> Ooh, remind me what they are. Oh, here we go. <laughs> yeah. 
I might be able to help you out, Cam. I've got a little list here. <laughs> yeah, give me the name because I can't remember them all by, by heart. To be <laughs> Use it or lose it? Use it or lose it. That's that's a very important one. And that's one that we see a lot. So if you go to the gym and, and, and it's, it's not only about the brain, like our muscles are quite plastic as well. So when you think about movement, you need that plasticity, not only in the brain, the spinal cord, in the nerves, but also in your muscles as well. So you can see that. I think analogy to that is that it's always like riding a bike. So if you don't use it, those connections are still going to be there. If you don't have an injury, those connections are still going to be there. But it's harder to. So if you if you learn how to ride a bike when you're five, by the age of your 25, the next time they hop on a bike, it's going to be really hard to reactivate those those connections. And when you have an injury to the brain, if you don't use it, you actually start to lose um, the chances that you're going to lose neurons and you're going to lose connections are, are greater because your brain is going to focus on the things that you are using because it's a waste of energy to spend time maintaining spending energy maintaining a circuit that's not being used interesting okay well let's just say for example you know someone's got an sci they want to try and um you know improve their hand function am i gathering by what you're saying that the repetitive nature and the specificity of um of the exercise needs to be very task specific so if you're holding a cup versus holding a pen versus lifting something I, I don't know I'm just making stuff up now so it would have to be quite task specific hmm. and so like I guess what I'm I'm asking next is how do you keep the motivation for your clients to be like I definitely am okay with like I don't know whether it's opening or closing or whether it's you know doing this over and over and over again to try and keep that motivation as therapists I think that's where it's really important that we're being very, as Cam said, specific to the client's goals. And that's where we'll have the discussion with the clients prior to starting, you know, what are your goals? Because if someone's goal is to be able to drink out of a cup, for example, and they're really passionate about that, that's going to sort of help drive the motivation along the way. And then also we'll provide them with education. It's part of our role as physios and EPs. So, you know, we would give this sort of same basic level of information to our clients and explain neuroplasticity and what that means and, you know, why we need to be doing so many repetitions. And, you know, if, if we don't do that, when then they were a lot more unlikely to see the progression. And then, you know, as they sort of go along and they start to see improvements, it might be that they start off that they can't even open their hand. And then, you know, over the next three weeks, they see that they're starting to be able to slightly open it that also helps to drive their motivation along the way as well and you know that's our role as therapists is to motivate our clients to reach their goals and provide them all the support along the way as well yeah and I guess the other thing that is a challenge for us as therapists is to do the repetition without repetition which is for example if you want to do a sit to stand so you're going to practice sit to stand from different surfaces from different heights in different settings so you're going to do sit to stand and throw a ball you're going to do a sit to stand and reach for something so we're still working on the same movement pattern but we're using we're manipulating the environment and we're manipulating the task to make it less repetitive so for example for writing so we're not going to spend the whole session trying to write so we're going to work on your ability to get your thumb pad next to your um index pad and we might do that using pegs which is the same 
movement that you might use, similar movement that you're going to use for writing or picking uh, beans or something. So you, you set up the activities, different activities, in a way that there's some overlapping between them. And you try to do that repetition without so much repetition. I guess technology is helping us a lot with that, with the use of games. So game-based therapy or virtual reality, where you're actually doing lots of movements without even realizing because you're moving the avatar. You're not actually thinking of how many times you're moving your hand <laughs> or your thumb or your legs or whatever sort of device. You're too busy being distracted. And that's the beauty about those type of technology in rehab because it helps us get into a great number of repetitions without just asking the patient, can you please do 500 situ stands? <laughs> so how do you approach um, different uh, disabilities and conditions um, to try and, I guess, you know, uh, enhance the neuroplasticity in, in different clients? So if they had like an SCI to somebody who has MS to somebody who has something else, do you have like different approaches? I guess it really depends on what, what their impairments are and, you know, what we're trying to work on. I mean, as Care mentioned before, like with stroke, that's obviously an injury to the brain. There's a lot more research and a lot more evidence behind neuroplasticity and how we drive that. Um, whereas, you know, with our spinal cord population, as Cam said, like we see a little bit less evidence behind it and we're still trying to work out which ways we can sort of induce those plastic changes. Um, so it really does depend on the client's goals and what what we're trying to achieve as to what sort of strategies we'll use to try and get them. Because, for example, you know, an upper limb goal versus a lower limb goal or a balance goal or something like that is going to be quite different mm. to the other, if that makes sense. Yeah, and the other thing to take into consideration, so the, as Hannah was saying, the, the place where the injury was, if it was in the brain, if it was in the spinal cord or in the nerves, so different areas of the nervous system have different potential for plasticity. So the nerves, we know that if you don't do anything, they're going to grow one, uh, they're going to grow, I think it's one centimeter per day, one millimeter per day. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's so there is some spontaneous recovery and they, and it's probably the peripheral nerve is the easiest way to get the plasticity, uh, the easiest place where plasticity happens. Then we have we know that in the brain there is spontaneous recovery as well, and some recovery will happen regardless of what we do. But we need to dig a little bit more to get like a that recovery that is sufficient for functional uh, improvement in in some patients. So and the spinal cord between the three places is probably the hardest one to release plasticity. Mm. Uh, and that's what makes it so fascinating. <laughs> and um, so the place where the injury was, the severity of injury. So what was left? How many neurons? What's the secretory that was left? Because you might have a massive, even even though the 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 nerves are the easiest one to to grow after an injury. If you have a complete damage of the nerves, you're probably not going to have the same level of, of plasticity. So, or if you have a complete spinal cord injury that has been completely severed, it's going to be much harder to have improvements than if you had an incomplete spinal cord injury. Same thing with the brain. Sometimes we see some traumatic brain injuries or massive hemorrhagic strokes where the potential for plasticity gets very limited because the injury just affected too much of the of, of the structure. So the size of injury and also age. We know that younger brains have more potential for neuroplasticity than older brains and, and older nervous system. 
So these are three key things that we need to take into consideration. What do you mean by um, older? Like what is the age of an older person? Well, there's no cutoff really in terms of when. So we know that by the age of 25, at the age of 25, we start to lose more neurons at the fastest rate than what we had, uh, than we were losing before. So, but there's, as I said, there's still potential, but that potential because aging makes us lose neurons, the older the person, I can't give you like a, a cutoff of when it's in, in, in adults, but as we age, we decline in number of neurons. So what conditions do you mainly treat? Because it's not all just spinal cord injury. Essentially, we're open to all neurological conditions, but I guess the ones that are most common, that are most prevalent in society as well is stroke, our traumatic or our acquired brain injury, multiple sclerosis, Parkinson's, cerebral palsy or motor neuron disease. But, you know, there's a huge amount of other um, conditions which aren't as sort of prevalent, but we still see a lot of those come through the clinic as well. Um, I guess something that we do specifically at Neuromoves in the approach that we take to help drive neuroplasticity with, I guess, all of our neurological clients is to try and really promote recovery and plasticity through having less compensation, you know, a lot more weight bearing throughout our sessions to try and really increase that sensory feedback that the body's getting. Um, you know, more tasks that are going to be really functional and excite the nervous system to promote these changes. Um, you know, as therapists, we're really hands-on, so providing, again, those tactile sensory cues um, to our clients as opposed to sort of having a more hands-off approach. Um, so really, I guess, driving the movements that we're wanting them to learn so their brain can relearn the correct way to do something. Um because what we do see as well is that, you know, if someone does have an injury, they might pick up certain compensation strategies to do something. So, you know, someone, for example, who has a lot less use of their left leg might start to only, you know, rely on their right leg because it's stronger, which is fair enough. But then, you know, that pathway in the brain that is telling your left leg to do the work starts to get used less and less. So it becomes less active, as Cam was saying. So then we need to sort of reteach that left side hey wake up we want you to start working again now so that's where you know as therapists when we're retraining someone to walk we might you know we'll be on their left leg and control it in the way that we want it to go in the correct movement pattern as opposed to what their body might be sort of wanting them to do from what they've learned without having access to you know all of their muscles for example just trying to eliminate that learned behavior i guess because it's you know they thought that there was no choice but to but instead there's another yeah. way yeah yeah because it can sort of go the other way neuroplasticity you know we can learn behaviors that aren't particularly good for us as well so um you know it's about trying to get rid of those pathways that we don't want as well and make the ones that we do want stronger yeah. and sometimes it's not always that not all the time the compensations are villains sometimes they are the only way to get the person functioning so for example you've tried um because when you think, for example, someone in a wheelchair, they're compensating for the lack of movement in their lower limbs. And in that case, being pushing a wheelchair is what's going to get the people out, the person out and about. And then that compensation is desirable because it's better to be in a wheelchair than being 
not moving around and they will have much more det- much, will bring much more health problems than having someone in a wheelchair so what we try in rehabilitation is um to try to stimulate that neuroplasticity as much as possible to try to get those muscles as strong as possible but we know that that there are limitations for that and that's when compensations are allowed and are desired <laughs> because it's not always that we're going to be able to recover um the movement the way that we would like. I guess that um, leads me into my next question around um, reality versus expectation of somebody who might think that, you know, it's very exciting that you're able to like retrain the brain or retrain the neurons, I guess. Um, It might take a really long time depending on, like you said, the severity and, you know, all the other external factors involved. You know, do you ever come across people who 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 think, oh, this is going to happen within a year, and it does not happen within a year? Uh, and how do you and how do you try and I guess build the realism of the situation in the client to just sort of go, well, this is still an important goal, but it, it it's going to take a while. Yeah, exactly as you just said, it's really about educating the client here. Um, which again, you know, we might spend half a session just having these conversations with people because it is really important to set realistic expectations. And it's, you know, we're not here to crush anyone's hopes, but it is important that they understand that it is a process. And before they could, you know, if if their goal was, say, to walk, before they could even get to that stage, we first need to be able to sit up. So, you know, let's focus our attention on that. If we reach that goal, we can then you know, discuss what's next from there. Um, you know, it is a really challenging part of our our roles is because, you know, everyone, of course, wants to achieve their goals. And sometimes, as Cam said, there can be so much damage that we can't actually get to that particular goal. So, again, it's really about educating someone, giving them sort of the information so they can try and process it and just supporting them along the way as well. Um but it can be a, a really challenging part of our jobs as well, for sure. Yeah, I think that's the one million dollar question. <laughs> How do we balance uh, the expectations and our, even our expectation as a therapist? Because we want everyone to to get better when you when you work with someone like we would like to have those answers, but um, is that fine line of knowing what the literature says? So, for example, for walking, we know that there's some some indicators if someone's going to walk or not. So if we know that if someone is an Asia C, for example, in a spinal cord injury and they have a grade three on cords, they are more uh, likely to, to become walkers. So there are a few parameters that the literature show us that helps us, that help guiding us through, through that process. And we tried, as Hannah was saying, communication, education, be completely transparent with your, with your patient is the, or client is the most important thing and their families as well because the families are usually uh, involved in that process as well and I guess it's we, we face people we work with people that their goal is to go back to walk and we might work with that with them and that might take years and years and it may be walking just a couple of steps it may not be walking independently in in the streets for example and there are some clients that they might even have some movement on their legs and they just say okay I'm happy with that I want to be on a wheelchair I want to just get out and about and I don't have more time to spend in rehab I want to move on with my life and that's perfectly fine <laughs> <It's> not, <you laughs> know. 
Could you just um can you just take the people through uh what an Asia scale is because um even though I have a disability I still don't really know what it is. Yeah, it's it's a lot of letters and numbers to, to define things, right? <laughs> so we, we call it Asia A. Um after so this classification it's only for spinal cord injuries and it's more accurate probably on traumatic spinal cord injuries that it's easier to classify uh, people in that way. Some of, of the spinal cord injuries that are progressive or um, of like transverse myelitis where people are going to transition very quickly from one point to the other. So it's more common to use those terms in, in the traumatic for the traumatic patients. So A is someone that doesn't have any motor or um, sensory function, including uh, anal uh, sensation and anal movement, anal uh, reflexes uh, below the site of injury. And Asia B is someone that has some sensation, doesn't have any movement, but ha could have some sensation spared below the level of injury. And Asia C might have some sensation, but does have some movement spared below the level of injury, but most of the muscles are still a little bit weak, can't move very well against gravity. And Asia D is the ones that have movement below, below the level of injury and the, the strength on the muscles. The muscles are a little bit stronger below the level of injury, so most, most muscles can move against gravity. And Asia E is no uh, pre preserved motor and sensory function below the level of injury. And it's more common to see Asia ease on those injuries that are more like a, a contusion to the spinal cord and someone that had a full recovery after, it was just a, a minor spinal cord injury and they had full recovery after the, the injury. Over the course of, I guess, you guys either lecturing or in your work uh, as physiotherapists, what sort of research or changes in approaches over the past, um, I don't know, 10 to 20 years have you seen for, you know, neuroplasticity? For me, I guess coming with a little bit less experience than Cam, I was taught at uni about neuroplasticity. So, you know, it, it is really quite recent. Like if we're, you know, it was established a while ago but up until recently so in the last sort of 10 years that I've been through university we were taught from the get-go about neuroplasticity um, and sort of where the research is at and I'd say sort of probably within the last 10 years like what we know now is what we probably knew knew then as well um, Cam might be able to shed a bit more light on from her studies as well yeah so when I went to uni which is a bit so which was 18 years ago now and so we've learned about neuroplasticity but we've learned that neuroplasticity was only possible in the brain and that it was limited when it came to the spinal cord we've learned that it, and, and that was possible in the peripheral nerves when it came to the spinal cord we've learned that it was that the spinal cord is hardwired and that no changes were possible in that in that structure. So there are some new, not so new anymore, but in the past 30 years, there has been a little bit of a change in paradigm. We still, like we still don't have interventions delivered worldwide to enhance um, 
this plastic, this, the plasticity of the spinal cord. But what we've learned in the past 30 years in terms of research is that the spinal cord has been underestimated for quite a long time. So that idea that it is hardwired, that once it's injured, it's injured, it's changing, which is great. So we're starting to see some more therapies now to elicit that the levels of plasticity. Now we know that plasticity can happen in the spinal cord, not as easily as in the brain and in the peripheral system. We, and we're learning how to t tap into that that potential of the of the, the spinal cord. Because before we used to think that there was only like a bunch of neurons connecting the the brain with with the nerves and muscles. And now we know that it has a rich circuitry of of neurons that respond to an injury. Okay. And the other thing that we've learned lately was in in relation to the the complete injuries. Because we we would classify as a complete injury a spinal cord injury that was completely transacted. So no more connection between the, the parts that were, that were injury, injured. Now we know that um, almost half of the spinal cord injuries that are considered complete, which means that they don't have motor or sensory function below the level of injury, is still have some connections left there. So that might be some connections. So the complete are not so complete as we usually think. So there might still be some connections there, but those connections are quite weak to produce movement or to produce sensation. And we are learning about some new therapies that even with that little bit of connections left, we can try to list more activity on those and have some movement and have some sensation back. And uh, in terms of those therapies, one that we've been hearing a lot about is the epidural or the transcutaneous stimulation, which works as a hearing aid to the spinal cord. So you put it there and then those connections, they are quite weak. It, it makes those connections amplified. Uh, work a little bit harder. Amplified, thanks. That's the <laughs> word that I was looking for. Yeah. <laughs> and then with those connections amplified, you can have movement, you can have sensation, you can have return of function. So that's the idea of the new therapies. So to try to enlist those connections that are, are still there. So you've got the, um, what did you call it? Transcutaneal. Help me out. Stimulator. <laughs> yeah. So you've got it on the <laughs> spinal cord. It's the hearing aid. It's the hearing aid to the spinal cord. And, the so, aid, yeah. <laughs> um, and then it amplifies, I guess, the messages being sent down. Um, so then it's building stronger connections. So then when you take away the hearing aid, it's still able to not as much or? That's the whole idea. So the whole idea is with training. So you'd get the hearing aid there, switch it on, <laughs> which is actually electrical current that is could be applied directly to the spinal cord in the epidural space, which is the space between not, not inside the nerve, but just next to the nerves where the nerves are in the spinal cord. Or it can be done transcutaneously, which we apply like an electrode to the skin and it's stimulating from the skin. So with no, no need of having surgery. So you do the training while the person has the stimulator on. So it's not something that you switch on and then whoo, off we go, everything is working. So it requires training. It requires that repetition, that specificity. So the, the muscles and the nerves relearn what they have to do to produce movement. And the receptors relearn what they have to do to produce sensation. And then after lots and lots of training, the researchers, and these studies are still with a very small population. So there is an indication. We can't say that this is certain, that it's evidence-based. The evidence is growing. So, But what we've seen is that in a small 
in studies with small number of, of people, that after a lot of training, people can rely less on the electrical stim, so you can reduce the amount of, of assistance that the, the simulator is, is giving. And some people were able to still have some movement, even when the simulator is completely off. We still don't know when, when because these are studies that I'm talking about with less than 10 people in it. So it's very early days. Is it less than 10 people because it's just really hard to find people with, like, I guess my question is when you're doing these sorts of studies, is it people who are of a certain SCI level or do they have to have a certain amount of functional motor in order to be able to qualify for these studies? Yeah, so eligibility criteria can be can be a thing. And the other thing is that those studies require long-term follow-up and it takes time to recruit people. To do like studies like that, that requires lots of training, you need an army of therapists to be able to deliver this therapy for 10 people at one time. So sometimes you have protocols of four or six weeks, but you can only have one patient at a time because you don't have staff to get everyone trained. So that's usually why it takes so long. So researchers, they usually publish um for the first four patients, the first five patients, but they, they, the studies are still happening. It's just that takes time to accumulate a, a good number of, of people to get like those big sample sizes. So with this sort of research that's currently in progress, some of it in Australia, lots of it in Australia, when you're talking about the Asia scale or complete or incomplete spinal cord injury, can they still qualify for? Yeah. yeah. In America, so the studies that they've done in America, they've done with complete people. So the studies from Professor Susan Harkin and Professor Reggie Edgerton in walking and in increasing uh, upper limb function, they both done studies in complete injuries, which is absolutely great. The study that has been doing here in Australia with the e-walk trial it's being done with people with incomplete injuries. So they, one of the eligibility criteria is that they have to be able to take a step, one step independently or one step with assistance. So it could be, doesn't have to, they don't need to be fully able to walk or have, or be super strong on the lower limbs, but here in Australia, they're targeting the incomplete injuries first. I think the idea is to, I'm not involved in those studies, but I believe that the idea is to expand to complete injuries, but they just decided to start with the incomplete injuries. I just wanted to add, like from a clinical perspective, I've worked with a client who has had one of these epidural stimulators in um, and he was a complete injury and it, it really is just absolutely fascinating and amazing to work with him because you know, when this stimulator was off and you'd ask him to move his legs, he'd have absolutely no function at all. Whereas when the stimulator was on, you know, we worked with him three to four times a week over, say, a two-year period. By the end of it, with his stim on, he was able to use his upper limbs and help himself stand up. And for him, as, you know, Cam mentioned previously, like, that that didn't mean that he was now going to try and walk everywhere in his daily life or stand up all day because that's it's not energy efficient. It required a lot of energy for him to be able to do that. It was tiring. He would be sweating bullets. But for him it just meant, you know, he might be able to stand up and reach his toothbrush and then brush his teeth while he was standing or he might be able to just stand up at the bar and grab his beer and then, you know, sit down. So I think, it, you know, research is really slow and it's something that takes a lot of time and a lot of resources and money but you know it's definitely heading in the right right direction and it is truly amazing to 
sort of see how things are progressing forwards? Yeah, I think it's the first time in that we've seen those significant changes in people with SCI, especially with complete SCI. As I said, we still don't have the long-term follow-up studies that will say what's going to happen with the 3.10, 20 years' time. We still don't have studies with a large amount of participants in. But I think it's it's a good start. We are where we've never been before. I remember like having a lot of seeing, reading a lot about stem cells and everyone having a lot of hope in stem cells. And we haven't seen those changes with the stem cells like we're seeing now with the with the simulator. So it's definitely a very exciting times for spinal cord injury research. So um, just before I leave you to, you know, um, freely give me comments or added stuff, I, I'm always fascinated by people who take up physiotherapy in spinal cord injury and the, the whole like neuropopulation. So do you want to tell me, what made you uh, want to become a physio in this area slash move on to something else and do a lot more further research? Want to start, Hannah? Yeah, I guess um, I sort of fell into neuro. I originally thought I wanted to work in more the musculoskeletal side and then I sort of had placements or opportunities that landed me working in the neuropop. And I, for me, it was once you start, you can't go back. It's just such a fascinating field, you know, no presentations are ever the same. So you could have the exact same, you know, on paper stroke or spinal cord injury, yet it's going to present completely different compared to the individual. Um, And I just think being able to to support people through this journey in their life, you know, a lot of people with neurological conditions, it's um, such a challenging time in their life. So to be able to provide them with some support and guidance through it is just such a privilege. Um, And just the brain is just the most fascinating organ we have, you know, it controls absolutely everything we do. So, you know, you're always on your toes, you're always having to think, problem solve, um, and it's just a really great space to be in, I think. I guess uh, my story is going to sound very cheesy, so I apologise. That's fine. I'm here for that. Uh, To me, was when I was around six or seven years old, I watched a telethon, you know, like, and they were raising money for a uh, rehabilitation center in Brazil. And that was probably the first time that I saw people, especially kids, in, in wheelchairs. And then I remember telling my mom that I would like to work with people in wheelchairs. So then I went through the phase that I wanted to be an astronaut, I wanted to be a lawyer. And then when I was at the point of going back to um, to really think about what uni I wanted to, to do, and I was like, oh, yeah, this is a profession where you actually get to work with people in wheelchairs. So that's why I started to, <laughs> to, to do physio. <laughs> and, yeah, and then once I started physio, I always knew that I wanted neuro. I always knew that I wanted to work with people with disabilities. It was just something that clicked in my brain, and I just, like, couldn't see any other path, very inflexible. <laughs> and that's what I'm going to do. <laughs> and that's where, where I am today. So these days I'm not so clinical anymore, unfortunately, which because I really love to do the clinical work. But yeah, but through research, I get to see clients. And then when I decided to do my PhD was because I wanted to do, to do research, to help creating knowledge and to help hopefully improving um, the outcomes for people with, with disabilities. 
It just comes back to your comment earlier about how, you know, you, you definitely like children definitely click on to something when they're like younger and they're like, yeah, yes. I'm going to be that person. <laughs> Can I just add one thing? Yes. <laughs> Is that, uh, I think uh, we talked a lot about neuroplasticity. We talked a lot about uh, potential new interventions for people with, especially with SCI. But I think one very important thing that I like that everyone that has a disability, that ha- everyone that has a neurological condition to think of is about general health outcomes. It's not always about recovering, walking, recovering, whatever function people would like to improve. A lot of it is about being healthy. So it's about exercising for being healthy um, to avoid uh, other diseases, to avoid things like um, heart diseases, high blood pressure, uh, things like that. So it's really important for people to stay fit and health because we don't know what interventions are going to come. But if people maintain their body uh, healthy, they're going to be more eligible for the, if they don't have any muscle contractures, if they are not very deconditioned, they're going to be much more eligible for those those interventions. And we know that exercise is medicine. So I think regardless of what your goals are, it's super important to have an exercise program and adhere to it if, if you want to have functional improvements or if you want to, to stay healthy. So that's what I wanted to say. <laughs> I know. I love that. I love that. <laughs> Agree with everything Cam just said. Absolutely. And like, you know, that's part of, um, you know, our Neuromoves motto is that we want to make exercise accessible for everyone. So I think that is, it is the most important thing is maintaining that healthy lifestyle as best you can. So, yeah. I guess maintaining a healthy lifestyle, you know, your end game may not be the ability to walk like it, it might not be the ability to walk, but then so many other things are going to take over and it all starts with, I guess, a yeah healthy baseline. It's all about what you need to have a meaningful life. Like you need to be healthy to be able to go back to work. You need to be healthy to go back to any hobby or any activity that you, you like to, to develop. So, yeah, it's not only about big recovery. It's about being the best that you can, right? For yourself, hey. Yes. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode of Have the Nerve. If you're listening to this on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, give this show a five-star rating and review. It helps more people find us. This episode has been written, produced, and edited by me, Susan Wood. Logo art by Kobe Ann Moore. For more information about anything we've discussed, including the eWalk trial and Project Spark, check the show notes in this episode. And if you'd like to help us spread the word for Have the Nerve a little bit more, you know that person that you've had a crush on for ages but you don't know what to say? Well, a great icebreaker is to tell them about me and this podcast and that they should listen to it. And now you'll have something to talk about. So you're welcome.